Hey, everybody. Welcome to the new Conversations in Groove podcast. You might ask yourself, what are Conversations in Groove? Well, we're going to find out what your groove is and what a lot of my friends' grooves are. Like, what do they do? They play music? Are, are, they, are, they, are they actors? Are they in TV and film? I don't know, but you're going to find out. And the cool thing is, it's all live right here from Earth Tones Recording Studio. So, welcome to the Conversations in Groove podcast. All right, so welcome to episode four, season one, episode four of the Conversations in Groove podcast. And today, my guest is my good friend and ultra uber cool producer, Fanatic. Hello, hello. Glad to be here. Thank you, man. Yeah, man. We've been talking about this for a minute, and uh, it's good to see it all coming to fruition, man. You got like a real extensive setup here, so... (laughs) I'm, I'm glad to be a part of this. I, I didn't know you was going to go all the way in like this, but you did. <laughs> you thought I was going to be recording it on yeah. my phone. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is like a television studio here. Oh, man. I, yeah. Well, it's cool. It's mm. You know, I figured I got the room. Mm. I've got the room to do it. And, right. and I, you know, the audio end of it, the audio end of it is easy. You know, right. I could do a couple of mics mm-hmm. and I can do them like via Zoom and stuff like that. Right. So the the having the cameras to do, you know, to record bands doing, you know, doing their thing in here. Uh-huh. I thought, man, if I could just kill two birds with one stone while I'm recording the audio version of it, because I would record the audio version like this anyway. Same okay. mics and everything like that, you know. Nice. So uh, anyway, so let's let's introduce the fine people as to who you are uh-huh. and what you do. Okay, uh, let's do it. And I always like to start with everybody at – at the uh, beginning, like where uh-huh. I know people from, uh-huh. because I have people on here and people are like, man, how did you get this cat on? And I'm like, you don't even want, <laughs> you don't even, there's, it's too long uh-huh. of a story to go uh-huh. into. Right. So this is where we kind of, I'll try to shortly go into stories like that. So I know you because you're from Greensboro. I am from the sixth borough, Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, went to Greensboro Day School and Smith High School and um, just been here and um Greensboro is my foundation for where I learned and music and getting into music. Yeah, and I I I I heard of you like coming back to town, and Uh man, I'm so disconnected from things because I'm in here all (laughs) the time. Like I'm in here working on like the Uh the micro of records, you know, Uh and stuff like that. I don't know what's happening outside my front door (laughs) half the time, man. So you know, people were talking about you. I didn't know your track record because mm-hmm. you weren't you were from here, but right. you weren't based out of here. No, so no, no, it's no. like you know I was working with people from here and working in here all the time. So, so uh, you grew up here. So uh-huh. I, then then when I when I see your track record before uh-huh. I met you and I see your track record, I'm like, eh, that's pretty impressive for a kid from Greensboro. <laughs> I have to pinch myself sometimes too. I'm like, yo, I'm from Greensboro. <laughs> This doesn't really happen to people from Greensboro. So if you guys don't know, I yeah. can run down I can run down four or five off yeah. the top of my head yeah. that always come up in conversations. Mm. Uh Beyonce. Yeah. Lil' Kim. Uh-huh. Will Smith. Mm-hmm. Biggie. Yes. All right, that's four. I don't know if I would even need to go any further with anyone else. I mean, those are some iconic artists. Uh also Anthony Hamilton, Boys to Men, uh Mace, uh Blackstreet, uh Michael Jackson. 
Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't let me forget that one. <laughs> so I, I've been very blessed in my career to work with, uh, well, first of all, just to even be producing music at a time when so many icons were out at one time, because that's so rare today. So even to be out here, uh, out there producing records during that time and to interact with those people was like an amazing, amazing thing, man. I wouldn't have really thought yeah. about it like that. Think yeah. about like you think about how many. Yeah. And the thing is, when you talk about like icon status now, yeah. it really has to go a certain amount of years yeah. before you go yeah, like, yeah. oh, well, this person wasn't just a flash in the pan. Right. They weren't just a one hit wonder or whatever. Right. And talking about those people now, right. it's a it's a you know, it's it's a thing. And you're right. Look yeah. at how many people yeah. from that time, like just crammed in a concentrated mm -hmm. thing. And you were, I mean, and you worked with the, you work with the big ones. And that was <laughs> what blew my mind is I think that, uh, when we, when you and I met the first time, I think uh. you came in with JT. Uh, uh, no, I met you at, um, what you call it told me about you, uh, uh, Thomas. I met you. I met you with Thomas at GTCC. Oh, okay, okay. We had a meeting over there. So, and I met you there. So, yeah. So we had we had, we we worked in here one day, mm -hmm. and I knew we were going to get along. Uh, I, not that I didn't think we were going to get along, but uh, I knew we were going to get along. We were going to be lifetime friends because. Uh, after working on a track uh, that was very R&B and uh, current radio sounding uh, and had a lot of samples in it and uh, things like that, after everybody left, you hung around and you said, the one question you asked me, and I thought, again, I think I like this kid. <laughs> he, says, he says to me, hey, man, can you record drums that sound like the Beatles? <laughs> and I was like, man, what are you talking about? And yeah. we had been, if you guys don't know, we haven't done any like tours of the studio or anything like that, but... Mm. My studio has a control room and they have the big room that right. you and I are sitting in now. And the control room is mm. in there and there are two windows that look into it. And one of those windows that looks out here was covered with a piece of foam. So we mm. had worked in the control room and the mm. vocal booth right. the whole night and you couldn't oh. see out here. And you didn't know that this was out here. And you said, well, where do you record those drums? And I said, out there. And you said, what are you talking about? Man? And I opened the door and it was like a kid at Christmas time. Yeah, this is like Willy Wonka or something like <laughs> <laughs> little door back there and it's like whoa what is behind there oh man but it was crazy because there are very few studios here in greensboro that you that have live rooms and that have live rooms with the setup that you have kits you have isolation booths the whole nine so and guitar amps marshall amps all this stuff in there so it's like uh it's like a playground in here so when i come here to work it's like there's nothing that i can't dream of doing and the fact that you like really steady. So I can call out uh, the Beatles, I can call out uh, Hendrix, I can call out a bunch of different um, artists that I'm trying to channel the sound and you know exactly how to get that sound, whether it be a vocal effect, whether it be uh, tuning the drums a certain way, whether right. it be the amps, uh, the effects and miking the amp, the live guitar amps, not going direct and doing it in po uh, and after after we recorded it's actually it's going down like that that's so, what it is yeah so a lot of the recording techniques are very similar to how they used to do it back in the day and that is so important with recapturing that sound so yeah. so i love that and you play well. so that's the biggest <laughs> thing so i always try to work with engineers that have uh that are musicians also too because when you hear something and nobody else is in the studio you can say hey man 
let me get some guitar on that. <laughs> you got to be able to do a little bit of right. everything, man. It's and, like I, and Benji can play. He can channel any guitarist that I name. Oh, he on, knows man. their style and he can channel it, and it always comes out just come as on, I envisioned man. it. So he's a guitar guy. <laughs> One, he's a guitar guy, and two, he came from. He was really into the MTV era. That, so that he, was me, man. His writing, his arrangements, his playing, all of that are very, it takes you very much into that time period where MTV was so huge. So I can channel that 90s, 2000 period when I work with you also too. So it's more than just having a studio and equipment in here. It's the, the person that's in here and what they bring to it and what they can get because as a producer, you have all this information and ideas in your head, but you still have to have the right people around you to help you facilitate those ideas and get them out. So yeah, man. the engineer is so important. So yeah. that's why I love Earth Tone Studio. It's, it's the best studio in Greensboro to me. Man, I appreciate you saying that. I didn't pay yeah. you to say that. <laughs> I can, though, if you want me to. I might have. I no, gotta. it's the truth. It's, it's the truth, man. I feel like I'm in L.A. or New York working when, I, when I'm in here. Well, I mean, the best part about working when you come in is mm -hmm. that I know mm -hmm. that we're assembling pieces of a puzzle mm -hmm. that we're not necessarily finishing putting together at right. that time. Yeah. I know that we can get three or four versions of something. I can give you five or six guitar takes. Um, we can get some drum tra takes out a Tracy or somebody like that. Uh -huh. We can do all that and send you a lot of send you a lot of options. Yeah, and yeah. then what amazes me is what comes back. <laughs> because well, well, the half the time I'll end. be like, "Wait a minute. Did I is that did I play on that? Did I cut those drums because he will he will do things in a way after he gets them because uh -huh. he has cuz a, a lot of this whole business is about is is a lot of it is about vision. Yeah. And there's people who don't understand vision and that's fine man mm -hmm. there's you know you the the i you when you think the way that you and i think mm -hmm. you think that everybody thinks that yeah, way yeah because you think that way yeah and you it takes a long time for you to realize that everybody's brain doesn't work that way right sometimes that's a blessing and sometimes right. it's a curse <laughs> no it's always uh pieces to the puzzle like i always think about phil specter and, and sly stone and how they produced and it would take them multiple and multiple sessions just to get the track together so we may cut the live drums here and guitars here yeah. but then i'm going home into my home studio and i'm adding things on top of that so mm -hmm. to make a record it takes me probably a couple of weeks to get all the parts together and then after i even get it together i'll hear something and i'll come back in the studio with uh tracy and yeah. Tracy Thornton, and he'll mm -hmm. lay some live drums on top of program drums that I have. So yes. I'm constantly, you know, building this 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 thing so it becomes this grand thing so that when you do sit down to write and record vocals, you have this wall of sound and ideas and colors and things to, and to inspire a, you. And there's a vibe to it. Yeah, and definitely. definitely. Your, your vibe lately... Mm -hmm. I can't say what your vibe was previously or mm. where it changed or if it changed across artists that you work to. And we'll get to all that too, man. It, I know that a lot of your vibe lately is that, that like that retro rock Definitely. sounding thing. Mm. And I'm like, well, shit, I can do that. And you're asleep. <laughs> he does it in his sleep. And so I always surround myself. I can record it. I can't, I won't say I can necessarily play it, but no, I'm saying I can it. get he that sound. When I say Benji, let, give me a Beatles, Beatles-esque change here like what would Lennon and McCartney do in this space <laughs> and he would come up with something that it feels like John is in the studio actually laying it down so so That's I love awesome. that when I'm working with people that can channel those those time periods channel those type of artists and things like that because it's very eclectic but also too 
the match of something that I came up on, which was live instrumentation, and at the same time, then putting program sounds on it on top of it, because that's what everybody's using now. So you get a bit of the retro, but you also get some of what is going on today. Yeah. And I feel like when you confuse those things together, it, it allows you to have a wide audience because it's something that you know older people like, but it's also something that newer people like. So it still fits in. It's not like you're doing this throwback album that doesn't really have a space. Right, you know, in popular music. Well, it has a familiar, it has yeah. a familiarity to it in in either the sound or uh, the instrumentation yeah. or whatever. But then, like I said, when you bring things, uh, we'll cut things on the front end. Like right. on the front end, I mean, when he's got, if he has a, say, he comes in and has a program drum part that he mm. says, I like these drums, but I want real drums that mm. are something like this, but have some variations. To right, it. and we start to kind of build that thing. Mm. I don't know where it's going, right. and I don't. Even, and you have to realize with this job. I don't have time to ask. Right. I can't. He could explain mm. it. You mm. could explain that to me 50 different ways. Right. I'm never going to know what's inside your head until right. I hear it come out of the speakers. Right. And well, I can just I can just give you what you you just say. I want a drum that sounds like this. I get it. And you go like, yeah, that's good. Right. And we send it all. Uh. And then it comes back. And again, you said there'll be things that we've done here, real uh. instrumentation that's been cut up or right. or, or, or whatever. Uh. And then I get it back or uh. you'll come back to cut something else, vocals right. or more guitars or something. There'll be. 50 other things added. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where they came from. No, I don't no, no. Know. The session doesn't end here. Like, after I exactly. leave here at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm going in and editing <laughs> and arranging all of the stuff that we laid in here mm -hmm. and whatnot. And uh, uh, the, the thing that I just love about it more than anything is just being able to uh, just to, to get whatever I need here and to uh, be able to take it home and expand on it even more, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it's cool, man. I yeah. mean, and this is, like I say, this is a, this is a, a lot of times it's cool because it's a starting point. And I learned things as an engineer uh -huh. and I learned things as a, as a producer myself from mm. other mm. producers and yeah. other engineers. Yeah. And, and the thing is he'll bring, you'll bring things back in uh -huh. and I'll look at the way you have your set, your pro tools session right. laid out. Uh -huh. And I'll be like, what did you, what do you do? <laughs> what are you doing? And what is that plug in? And what did you do? And you're right. like, Oh, that's so-and-so, so-and-so. You yeah. don't know that. And I'm like, no, I don't know it. Well, vice versa. Like we learn, we learn the new plugins and new technology from each other. I learn how to get certain effects that you're, especially when it comes to like slapback and retro vocal effects. I learned a lot of that from you because I put in my Spotify, a playlist of different songs. Like when I hear something that has a great vocal effect on it, I'll, I'll put it in my playlist so that when I come here, I can play you that record and say, Benji, how can I uh, recreate this vocal effect in the studio? But also, too, you know, it's about having the ideas of what you want. Like, even with a guitar solo, I'll have an idea of what the tone should sound like and what the feel should be. But I know that you're actually going to add your thing to it because it's not like playing a program sound. It's right. like there's a human element in it that you're going to add to it that I can't even fathom yeah. before you actually play it. I just know this is the tone and this is the vibe, but you're going to add your human element to it and your signature way of playing to it that's not going to sound like anybody else out there. Right. And, you know, and, and the thing that when I'm making these records, um, I'm trying to bring the guitar solo back to radio because I remember... Thank God somebody yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... <laughs> Like no, I there remember, are, there are there are songs that are trying to do that too, yeah. but not the so, you know. I mean, and even in the day, right. first thing to get cut in the radio edit was right. the guitar solo. The guitar solo, right? You know. And I'm like, it's eight bars, so it's like 15, 20 seconds. But the thing about it is, 
is that I'll hear guitar solos on the radio now, but they'll just be like noodling or whatever. It's nothing really distinct. But I remember like when I heard Beat It, I knew the guitar solo word for uh, line for line, even, and I didn't play guitar, but I knew it. And that's where air guitar started and all of those things is because <laughs> you knew the solos. Mm -hmm. And so the thing about it is like, they're so melodic and they're, they're something that the listener always can sing along with because they remember note for note what the solo was. Yeah, so man. I want to bring that back. I want to bring live drums back. Um, I know there was a time where a lot of British rock bands were doing fills every four bars. Mitch Mitchell and all these guys were doing a bunch of fills. So I want to bring that back because that brings the intensity back to the record. So, you know, programming is cool, but I think there's certain records that you need that live feel to like really give it an intense feel when it when those records come out yeah so, yeah and i mean just the just the element even if you're cutting even if you're cutting things like say you're say you're cutting up samples and you come in here and track say you track real drums and then you are cutting up samples uh -huh. and um taking it back even the variation you know if you don't go and stretch and quantize those even even the variation within the bar that yeah. you create is different than if everything is just on 100%. the grid and programmed and 100%. that has a that you can't like you said there's a there's a there's a human element to all of it no matter whether you sample it right or what if it's right. if it's samples of real whatever there's a human element to that timing that just either makes it mm. or, or, well, or it well, does Well, that's, it, that's, the, it that's the beauty it. of this whole thing is that um, I always say like, so people do a lot of programming, but when you're programming now, you're quantizing and you're putting it directly on the beat and everything. But when you have the human element to it, it's like you're not gonna play guitar the same way that this guy's gonna play guitar or this guy's gonna play it. So automatically it has a different sound than anybody else. Yeah. And if you notice all the greatest producers and artists, they had signature in their music. And when you have a signature way of playing, a signature style of playing, it separates you from everybody. I work with this guy, Andre Phoenix, who played on a bunch of my records. And he plays, he doesn't call himself a guitar player, but he plays guitar like he's playing the drums. So it's more of a percussive thing. Same Dude, thing with Char guy, that... Charlie Hunter is like that. Yeah, A totally. very percussive thing where he's damn near playing the bass and the guitar like it's a drum. And when you do that, it has a whole different feel than the next person or whatever. Well, it's like, you're, it, it's like those guys, I, and, and, and as a guitar player, it took me a long time to realize this, that, that, that in all, the, all of this stuff, like I can learn how to play 50,000 notes and mm -hmm. whatever, but rhythm is king. Definitely. If you don't have rhythm, you Definitely. can learn. You can play all those notes you want right. to. But if you're playing them out of time and you got no feel on how to play right. them, and you know, as, I, I watch as as guitar players especially get older. Uh -huh. You know, everybody talks about feel and playing right. with one note, and it's like sometimes that's a cop out, uh -huh. and sometimes it's not. But right. I mean, it's you got to play. You got to be able to play in time, right? And in in real in real time, right? Not on top of right, everything, right, right, and right. you have to know how to adjust that all on the fly. So. You know, and plus all them guys were like doing acid and all this stuff back in the day. So I know they weren't <laughs> playing on the on beat exactly on the beat. I know, right? But they were they were definitely giving you a vibe and a feel and whatnot. And um, even I even noticed that like when I'm recording vocals, like I record a reference and have a singer come in and sing something, and they're having trouble getting the timing. And I was like, I'm good, but I can't be that good. I'm like, but it's like the timing 
is something that I'm really good at, like in between the bars. And I think that's what separates you. It makes it special. It gives it a certain vibe that not everybody can do. So yeah. I love and the that. And the space and yeah. that stuff. Like yeah. when, you, when you make space and then you have a player come in and play on it, mm -hmm. and the first thing they try to do is fill that space yeah. and you're like, nah, yeah. boss, that's not what you're here and, for. <laughs> and that's the thing, when you that's so important that you mention space because you're trying to fit all of these sounds into these pockets and make it all work in conjunction with each other. So when you're talking about the, the accents and the things that the bass player is doing and making sure it finds a space in the mix and the same thing with the guitar player when he's playing rhythm and all that. So all that stuff has to work in conjunction with each other yeah, man. and fit where they're not stepping on top of each other. Yeah, it you know? ha and, and when you start to put it all together, when you start to put all these pieces together, uh -huh. The first instrument, I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, and I think about it like, and I mix like this too. I think about it like building a house. Like right. you start with a foundation mm -hmm. and you can't just, you know, I can't in the, in the, in the brick foundation of a home, I can't cram all the steps and the, right. you know, and all that stuff. Yeah. In the, it's like, you have to have a foundation to build on. And it's mm -hmm. really hard. It's really hard to explain to people. I mean, you know, players, studio players, that's why they're studio players. Right. Because right. they come in and they're just like, what do you want me to play? Right. And you tell them that's what you want them to mm -hmm. play. And that's what they play. Right. And they, they know that you have a purpose, mm -hmm. the vision that right. they you don't have to explain that to them. They right. know this guy knows why he's asking me to play this. Right. I'm going to go ahead and just play this and everything's going to be cool. Right. As opposed to, man, this guy don't know what he's talking about. And I'm not playing enough. I'm going to fill in all this right. stuff right here. And, and then you ain't getting called back. Well, well that's, that's <laughs> the most important thing about a producer is being able to communicate with the musicians. Even if you don't play, you don't know notes. It's like you still have to be able to communicate to them to get the best out of them for them to really understand what you're trying to convey to them so that they can give it to you. And so for me, like I don't play guitar. I mean, I play chords, but I don't play right. like, you know, but I study it and I study great guitarists and all these different uh, things so that when I want to incorporate that, I can call out the guitarist. I love working with other guitarists like yourself that know those, those guitars and they know their style of playing. So you can call them out and be like, this feels like something Santana would 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 do. So right. give me a solo that feels like that, or, or or Jimmy Page or whatever. Like you can call it out, and they know how to get into that space and and give you that. You right. Know? So let's go backwards. Okay. All right. Let's start with uh, let's start with um, young fanatic. Uh -huh. You're you're from here. You're yeah. from Greensboro. We're mm -hmm. in Greensboro, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have to tell everybody that because you don't realize how. You don't realize how far reaching all these things immediately become. And people are like, where are you talking about here? Like, I don't, oh, yeah. where is here? Definitely. So, uh, so you actually attended a program at a school that my son is actually at now okay. at Weaver Academy. Yes. And that to me is amazing. Cause that, that speaks volumes about getting kids and young people interested in producing and doing what it is that you right. have ended up doing as a career mm. on an early, you know, on, yeah, yeah, on, the, yeah. on the early. And so tell me about your time there and, and how you, and basically cause there's going to be a lot of young cats watching this. And, right. the, and the question that I get all the time from young guys, they come in here and they want to be, they want to be where people are. And there's right. this vast, there's this vast canyon of unknown in between mm -hmm. where they're at mm -hmm. and where these people that they aspire to be mm -hmm. are. And they do not know the first step about how to get there, uh, about yeah. how it happened. Right. And so, you know, and a lot of things are, 
you know, I, I don't want to say chance, but I mean, there's a lot of things where you have, you have situations that happen that you just can't calculate right in your career. So right. my thing is, how did you, mm. what was the, what was the first step that you took to go? I, this, this is how, this is what I'm doing to get myself out of somewhere mm. like where you started with Weaver Academy. Right. I'm going to take this information, then I'm going to go and I'm uh-huh. going to do like, what, what was the first step that you took? Well, um, of course, you played in band. I played the saxophone in, in seventh and eighth grade. But um, then um, started getting introduced to hip hop. Started hearing hip hop records on the radio and things like that. So I saw Weaver Education Center. And I think I went to some summer program. And that's when I saw all the things that you could do over at Weaver. And you could get off campus, so it wasn't like sitting in a classroom every day. So I was like, okay, let me see what's up with Weaver. So I went, I went there, and I signed up for the electronic music class. And that was the first time I ever got used to, got introduced to drum machines, learning how to program drum machines and synthesizers and things like that. I had never done that before. So Ron Follis was our teacher at the time. I met my best friend, Eli Davis, who now manages Anthony Hamilton there. And he and I were really the only ones in the class that had a real love for hip hop. So we were in there actually, you know, because when hip hop first came out, it was just drum machines. They weren't doing anything other than programming drum machines. So you would have a whole record with a guy just rapping over a drum machine. Right. You know, so, and you know, later on, and and sometimes they would just rap over an instrumental, a whole band would play on it. But if you didn't have a budget to hire a band to come in the studio and create an instrumental for you to rap over, you were just rapping over a drum machine. Right. So. We would hear these Run DMC records. I think Sucker MCs was the record out of the time that was just strictly uh, a Lindrum. And so we were in there learning how to program on the Yamaha uh, drum machine. So that was the first time I really got introduced to actually making beats on a drum machine. And from there, um, after I went there like two years, I started, I purchased my first drum machine, my own drum machine over at uh, Music Loft. And so, ah, yeah, so. That's the first place I ever saw an 808. Yes, yep. right. Yep. So, so, so when I saw that, I bought a drum machine. I got into a hip hop band here with uh, Ski, who is from here, that Eli introduced me to. I was working with Mixmaster D, who was also a DJ, and he mixed records. He kind of turned me on to hip hop. And um, I would go to his house all the time, and he would play all these different hip hop records. Every Friday, we would go to the Greensboro Record Center with Susie, and we would get the latest uh, hip-hop record. And back then, it was so beautiful because you could just look at the Def Jam label, and you knew it was good, or the right. Profile label, and you knew it was good. <laughs> you didn't have to know who the artist was there, but you just saw the label, and you knew it was good. And that was the—and that was mm. the—that was the— to me, that was always the proving ground. Is you're yeah. standing in front of this rack of records, well, yeah. and you're like, "All right, uh-huh. what am I?" And it was like gambling. It was like yeah, the yeah. lottery. What yeah, because you only what? got enough to get one or two records. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you so, don't know, yeah. and you don't know what you're getting, yeah. but you cross some fingers. Yeah, and that was like, uh, you know, Motown. You know, I, I'm assuming like when my parents grew up and they were buying Motown records, like you could, you could, you could believe in the label that. Motown was going to give you a quality record every time. So yeah. it was the kind of same thing with Profile and Def Jam. And so uh, we would buy records. We started buying equipment. We had a little scam going on with Sears where we would get equipment. He worked at Sears, so we would get equipment from Sears. You know, um, I pulled the car, back it up to the loading dock, and we would put tape decks and turntables and all kinds of stuff in the back of the car. But um, so, so we would always start creating music at home 
in, in his house. And then that was me rapping over something, a drum machine with him DJing. We started getting our records on AM radio because we knew the DJ there. So to be in high school and have your record playing on the radio every morning before you go to class and people listening to it, you know, it was kind of like a big deal at the time. It was an yeah. extremely <laughs> so, big deal. So, so that was, that's where I, I started with my love for it. Um, from there, I went to music school in Atlanta at the Art Institute of Atlanta. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I, I went there and I, start, I studied the music business. I got really introduced to the music business down there. Jermaine Dupri was there. Speech from Arrested Development was there. Uh, Atlanta was was blowing up with the face records was just coming to town. Now they were instructors there or they were students. No, they were there. students. They were students there. Get out. Yeah. So now see that's yeah. cool. Man. Yeah. So so that was my first time really being around real people that are in the industry. Like I said, the face records was there. They were blowing up. Bobby Brown was huge at that time, so he basically had the whole pulse of the city. So that's where I really believed that it could be possible because I was actually seeing people that I would run into that were actually making records. And then I believed it was possible. So came back home and we did an independent label called Payroll Records and we were getting on New York radio, which at the time you couldn't get on New York radio if you weren't from New York. Right. But we studied, we, I was mentored by Biz Markey and Clark Kent and um, these uh, DJs that used to come down and do shows down here with these major artists. And so I was mentored by them on how to actually produce a record from how to set up your intro to your arrangement. All these things were so important. The arrangement was the biggest, it was the most important thing. Right. And when I look back at um, producers like Phil Spector, it was about his arrangement. It right. was about you know the wall of sound. It was all these different things. So. That's where I learned how to produce records, and from there we we uh, had some success in New York. Produced a bunch of classic hip hop records, and from there it was just you know. Then the, the phone started. Then the phone started ringing. Right, right. <laughs> you know. So what's cool is when you talk about when I hear you talk about these guys. I'll tell you, I hear you talk about Jermaine Dupri. I hear you talk about Biz Marquis. They weren't at the level that people know them as now. Right. From their careers. Right. They were on somewhat the same kind of level as mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. So I always try to tell kids coming through here and young, you know, young mm -hmm. people that are trying to do this mm -hmm. at the level that they're at. Right. I always tell them, I'm like, look at, look at your friends now mm -hmm. because they're the ones oh, that yeah. are, you're, you're all mm -hmm. going to pull each other through this whole mm -hmm. thing. One, mm -hmm. All it takes is like, you got a circuit of 10 friends. Right. All it takes is one of you to strike. Oh, and definitely. then, and then it's like, okay. And you're, it and it's happen. not like you're necessarily on, uh, on for the ride, but at the same time, if you're all, if you all kind of know what's up, right. once one of you knows the other nine are going to figure it out oh, real definitely. fast. Well, that was the whole thing about when we moved to New York city, people that we were hanging out with, you would see them get record deals. You would see them land placements on different albums and things like that. And when you start seeing your inner circle, the people with friends that you hang out with start having success, then immediately you become very optimistic it can happen because you know, like, I work on production just as hard as he does. Exactly, or, or, man. Or I'm just as good as him and he's making it happen. So I know it's possible to happen. So that's how we believed it could happen. And, um, and, you know, at this time, not a whole lot of artists were coming out of Greensboro. So going back and forth to New York was so essential in us being able to actually be in the mix when hip hop was first taking off. Yeah. You know, that's so cool, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that and to me, just just hearing that and hearing the amount, hearing the amount of drive that you had 
at an early at an early age uh-huh. to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the amount of drive to be able to do this, but looking the whole time. And you're saying, you know, I went to the Art Institute. I was mentored by people. I think that's so cool, man. Uh-huh. So yeah. what was your first major first major hit out of that out of that that New York hip hop scene getting 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 songs on, you know, New York hip hop radio. What was your first what was your first major hit that the you first would go major that hit was the was, major. was uh Crush on You by Little Kim. Um a guy by the name of Sincere Thompson knew um Eli and I used to go up to New York on the weekends and we used to stay at his at his um place. And so we always had these jobs, these third shift jobs, where we work three days and we take four days off. So when you're when you're doing that, immediately after you get off work on that third day, you're hitting the highway and you're going to New York. So you're sleeping on this guy's couch for like four days in New York City. And he's in the city every day. He works for a label, so he knows everybody. So he's going to industry parties, mixers, he's going to the studio, all these different things. So he knew little Kim's manager, and he's like, go to the hip factory and hang out in front of the hip factory. And you'll see, when you see Little Kim's manager, just tell him that you know me, tell him you have tracks for Little Kim. So, so I knew the hip factory was the <laughs> so spot. So literally, yeah. that's how that happened. Yeah, that, that was the spot where every day around five o'clock, you see all these SUVs pull up and you see a who's who of superstars coming out of there, going up in the hip factory. Because the hip factory was like the hangout. So it was like, People were in the lounge, in the lobby, everywhere. You knew when you were in there, everybody used to just hang out in there and something was going to happen. So the thing what he said is that um, it was like, um, I at the time, I was, I was working out of Ultimate Studios and they had one of the first CD burners. And at, at that time, that's when CDs were like $20. Right. You know, so, so. I would put all my tracks on CD where everybody else had them on debt. So I put them on CD because when you get in the meeting, you could just go through the tracks just like that. Totally. And so from the time I got off work third shift working at Super 8 uh, Hotel as a desk clerk. <laughs> I love it, man. See, I didn't know that uh, either. Yes, I would get I thought, off You don't know how much information <laughs> you're doing these podcasts I find out about my friends. I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. But that's yeah, good. I was Keep third going, shift sorry. desk clerk. So as soon as I got off work, at, um, I would sleep to 12. I got off at 7 a.m., sleep to 12. And I would make beats all the way until it was time, 11 o'clock the next night to go to work. So, and we would go to collectibles and uh, we would buy vinyl, just buy so much vinyl, jazz, rock, all everything, right? And so the thing about it is by the time I got to New York, I had probably 200 tracks. I just had like so many tracks. So I had a lot to play for artists. And what, what really got me over how I ended up working with Puffy, how I ended up working with Benson Herbert is like they were so impressed by my work ethic and how many tracks I always had, uh, arsenal of tracks. So I always had something to play for them. So when I got to Little Kim, Biggie asked me to come upstairs and play some tracks. So I started playing tracks for them and it was quiet in the room. I just, I'd play and go to the next one. They didn't even say go to the next one. I was just playing them. And if I didn't hear anything, then I play the next <laughs> one. So by the time the, 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 I got to my last track, I didn't hear nothing, so I was just like, well, I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to play these tracks. Um, thanks a lot, right? And as I was packing my stuff up to go out, he was like, uh, play track 7, uh, 13, 21, 25, and 38, right? So the whole time, they're back there rolling their weed. He's actually writing down the numbers. Right. So the tracks that hit him, he wrote the numbers down, and then I played the tracks again. And the next thing I know, I'm in the studio with Mace, Biggie, and Little Kim, and little C's like, 
making songs every single day in the Hit Factory. Well, they got the Hit Factory blocked out, so you're in there all day just Boom. laying down tracks Boom. and they're writing. And I'm learning from Biggie more, most importantly, arrangement. I'm learning about arrangement. I'm learning about um, how he's taking records that were very big hits back in the day and revamping them and choruses. I'm learning a whole lot about arrangement more than How much of a complete eye-opener was mm -hmm. that for you oh, definitely. to look at like, okay, this is Biggie, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody looks at like, and everybody looks at these, everybody looks at all these, uh, you know, you call them stars at that point, you know, right. and you, you, you look at that because what you know is, you know, their stardom and you know what you see uh -huh. on the surface. Right. And then all of a sudden you're like, man, this cat knows how to arrange. Oh yeah. And all of a sudden you're like, all right, teach me, teach me everything you know. And it's like the fact that this guy's biggie is still there, but at right. the same time now you're like, man, this cat's got. Well, know. well, the thing about it is I learned like this is why this whole movement is blowing up because he's not just a rap artist. He's actually a producer. He has ideas. He has concepts. He's he knows how to get Little Kim because Little Kim didn't even like the track that I gave her. She didn't oh. even like the track. But, and I mind, mind you, this is a track I did like maybe a year before that. So that also tells you, is like, don't ever get discouraged if people don't buy your tracks right away. Because every track that I've ever sold was something I did six months to a year to two years before that. It's already on your back burner. Right, right. I've already moved on. But um, she didn't like it, but he knew exactly what kind of impact this track was going to have. So he went back and made her do it. Because originally, Little C's <laughs> just did the record. And when they put the album out, everybody gravitated to that song. So he made her go back in the studio and put her verse on it. So even though she didn't like the song, I know every time she gets ready to come out with a new album because my ASCAP statements go up. Because <laughs> she's got to perform that song. <laughs> DJ start playing that song. That song is like her biggest hit, and it's a staple in her career. So, so the thing about it is what I learned about him is just like him being able to get the artist's whatever he had to say to her to get her to do the do the record because sometimes artists don't really see the vision and you have to be able to convince them to to do the record and it, 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 like we look at clive davis all the time talks about how artists he pitches songs to them and they didn't want to do the record but he saw something in it and got them to do the record eventually right. and they end up becoming big hit records so it's more than just the actual production aspect it's about getting the best out of the people that they can't see the vision and be and able the to right know. fit right and the right fit for stuff. I mean, there's right. a mil how many how many tracks have you you know ever heard about? Like you're talking about iconic tracks that mm. eventually somebody does them right. and they become a major hit. Yeah, and they'll and you know and and, and then there's ten other singers at the time right, right. that say, well, you know, we all passed on that right, song because right. we didn't like it. And Damn. but it may it, it they could have easily done a song like that and may not have taken off. Right, you know, because it wasn't maybe it wasn't the right fit. Maybe right. it was you know I don't know. Maybe Maybe it's maybe it's Providence. I don't know, but right. you you, it, it's crazy. It's crazy to see that all these pieces of that puzzle. They're all creative pieces too. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. even arrangement. I mean, right. and me growing up as a rock kid, as a player, like we all learned how to play. Right. You know, when sampling and all that stuff happened, that was like to us. It was like, it was like it was like there wasn't as much to to us as players. We're like, well, there's not as much talent involved right. in that. Mm -hmm. You know, and then as 
as I grow older into this career that I do, I'm like, you know, man, it's all arrangement. I don't care if you're 100%. going in and figuring out that sample on that record is going to cut at this point, And right. then I'm going to arrange it. It's right. like, I don't care if you got a record player in your right. hands uh. or if I got a guitar in my right. hands. It's like, you still got to know what, what's going to happen at that next step. The arrangement step. is the most important thing, especially now the arrangement is the most important thing because, you know, we, we consume so much music, right? The first 30 seconds of a record is the most important part, period, because yeah, man. we all know people that skim through records, skim through songs, and if you can't capture their attention in the first 30 seconds, they're moving on to the next record. So I think about that when I'm shooting video. I'm thinking about that when I'm uh, making records because it's so much content that's coming at us at, at one time. We don't really invest the time in to like, get all the way through the song to decide whether or not you like it. It's like, if it doesn't catch you in the first 30 seconds, you check out. So right, arrangement man. is so important with being able to capture. And once you get them, lock them in, you still have to lock them in. You have to right. keep them engaged. <laughs> right. So the record has to constantly be building. It has to constantly be building. Right. And so those drops are so important when you're pulling the beat out. Uh, uh, certain instrumentation that comes in that makes the record grow and feel different and the B sections and things like that. All of those things, especially when you're dealing with guitars because I probably, when I'm working with you and other guitarists, I probably put like 10, 20 different guitar tracks in there and color it different ways, whether it's rhythm, whether it's wah-wah, whether it's distortion, all these different things. Right. So you gotta constantly be fitting those things in there so that the song is just constantly building and it's interesting versus just being linear. Right. Right. Know? And and how many how many songs now like like that I really pay attention to radio, you know, and you listen to the length of a song. Uh -huh. It's the songs that you hear now that you know are three minutes. Right. You know that they have to be three, right. three and a half, maybe max, maybe <clears throat> three and a half if you know somebody. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And the best arranged ones are the ones that feel like you've listened to a ten minute track. Oh yeah. Definitely. You know what I mean? Yeah. They got all the right stuff. They got mm -hmm. all the right pacing. They got all yeah. that. And those are the things that when it really gets down to, when it really gets down to the details of all this stuff, uh -huh. you can have the right chord progression. You can have the right singer. You can have that. But like you said, at the very end, man, you've got to have, mm. you got to have the right arrangement. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I, I use uh splice as one of my uh, tools. Like after I lay the foundation with bass guitars and drums like that, I find all these sounds on splice that are Oh splice, yeah. yeah that's your that's what yeah, yeah. yeah. You turn very, me on you turn me yeah, on to that too. Because I was like, current, where do you get all these samples? All man? these sounds you hear them all over the records on the radio. But I probably after I get the foundation on the track, probably spend about two two, three hours just going through sounds and pulling sounds off of there, right? which is so tedious. But once you get all the sounds, now you have to narrow it down and put the sounds in the right places in the, in the track right. that allows the song to keep building. So it's a, it's a huge process, but when it's done and you hear it, and these are processed sounds, so it's almost like the record's already mixed anyway. So it sounds, yeah. it sounds really big, really great. Like if you type in 808 on under Splice, there's probably like 20 million 808 <laughs> That come up. That's true. But you got to go through it and you got to play them against your track and see what feels good and what fits and things like that. So it's a it's a long process um, with producing a record that, you know, the arrangement is the most important part of it.
And I know when you bring stuff back in here too, uh, not going back to that, but mm -hmm. speaking of splice, you'll bring things back in here and it's your choice of what samples that you're mm -hmm. going to put against that production yeah. as to how well they work and what the total, right. what, what the sum of all of it ends up being. You can't just grab, like I said, you just can't grab the first 808 on the list and no. go, great, it's 808. If it doesn't fit, it doesn't right. fit. And you're trying to force it. Mm -hmm. So I'll hear things that you bring in here mm -hmm. that you've put back into a production that right. we've cut some stuff here. And I have to ask you, uh -huh. Where'd you, where'd you cut those vocals? And you just look at me and that, that's the look right there. That's the smile right there. And you're like, splice, man. And I'm like, what? And yeah. I'm thinking that you've cut these vocals somewhere to fit perfectly in that song. No, my whole album, um, the Billy Lennox record that I'm working on now, the whole album is live bass, live guitar, some live drums, and splice on top of it as the, as the icing on the cake. So, you know, I use it all through my album you know I'm, I'm hoping Splice is going to give me an endorsement after this album <laughs> goes gold hey Splice uh, are you listening and I get, are you listening uh, Splice I get album of the year I can say that I use Splice uh, on the whole record so well I want to say too uh, mm. not that I, I I talk to a lot of companies about about things and as far as you know product endorsements and things like that and the people at Ubershaw have been cool enough to uh, hook me up with their they have a Wonderful software called Elastic, E-L-A-S-T-I-K, uh -huh. which I need to turn you uh -huh. on to. It's an incredible sampler. It's deeper than I have time for most days. Uh -huh. And so I want to say a shout out to them. Like as, if I if I have to sample stuff and I can I can put it in there or use their uh -huh. their packs are really killer. Uh -huh. They're really manipulable and, and they're they're just things that you Things that you wouldn't expect to hear a lot of times, right. and so pretty the 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 interface is pretty uh is pretty genius on it. Too, well, you got so. a lot of equipment companies that reach out to you to use their products also right. too, which is so great that um you're one of the first people to to test some of these products that they're putting out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them, yeah, 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 definitely, man. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about not the elephant in the room. Let's talk about let's talk about your uh, let's talk about your Grammy. Oh. Shall wow. we do that? Yes, let's talk about that. So, <laughs> I haven't had a chance to say yeah, that yet yeah. on my podcast. Let's talk about your Grammy. Yes. Yeah, so, so tell me how. Tell me the feeling from the kid, the kid from the borough that was working the three days a week, driving to New York on the other wow. four days, sleeping on a couch, mm -hmm. and then to have the Queen yeah. Bee say your name. Well, that at was the, the biggest thing. That was even bigger than the Grammy to me because on her first album that I worked on, I did a record called Speechless, that. It was so many big names on her first record that were producing on that record, from Scott Storch to you know everybody, right? Wow. So, so when you got all these big names on the record, Rich Harrison, Scott Storch, all these different people, right? You don't really think of yourself in that same you know class with these these producers right. because because they have records all over the radio, and she just gives you a shot, and now you're on the album. But the thing about it is... Let's the, tell everybody who she is. Oh, we'll go Beyonce. ahead and say it's Beyonce. It was Beyonce. And so, so the thing about it is is that I knew that the record I gave her was a record that gave her a chance to do something she had never done before. Because um, before she had done records that were just talking about relationships and love and things. This was the first record that she was actually talking about an erotic encounter. And so... For her to go from being in a girl group, this was the record that was going to change everything for her as an adult. She was being seen as an adult now, and so everything that she wrote about on that album was like the transition for her. And this was like her coming out record of saying, 
you know, I'm a woman now, so I'm talking about, you know, sex now. And so when you do that record on her, I gave her the track, and the track to me felt very erotic and whatnot. And so when I gave it to them, which I didn't hear back from them for like six, six, seven months, right? I gave and how did you get through them? Quickly. Okay, so I was in the studio with Dave Pensado mixing a Boys to Men record. You better shut your mouth, you know <laughs> so, Dave Pensado. Yeah. I'm going to knock you out. I didn't know I, that. I just Good happened to be God. in the studio and somebody was telling me about him. So I went down to his room. I played him the record. <laughs> he loved the record. So we ended up mixing the record. So as an engineer, yeah. I watch Pensado's yeah. place all the time. Yeah, he's is, the real deal. Know, and the thing about Dave is... He always has people coming in. He's worked with everybody, so he's always got people coming in and out of the studio. He did a lot of that pink stuff, yes, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. So he had just done that record. So a lot of people are coming <laughs> in and out of the studio. So when I'm in there with him, a girl shows up that knows him. Turns out the girl had worked with, uh, Dave had mixed some Beyonce records, so he knew her through that, right? Right. Turns out the girl went to the Art Institute of Atlanta. So when he introduced me and we started talking, the girl was like, oh, you went to the Art Institute of Atlanta also? I was like, yeah. I was like, that's where I first started learning how to produce, right? And so, because I didn't even know what a producer was before that. I didn't even know I was producing until I went there and they told me, this is what a producer does. And I was like, oh, I've been doing that the whole time. I didn't even know right, that's I what it was. I just thought that's what I was supposed to do, <laughs> right. right? Right, right, yeah. So, yep, yep. so she was like, um, she tells me, you got anything for Beyonce? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I gave her the track. <laughs> I didn't hear nothing from them. I didn't hear anything from them for like six months. And then one night I get this call in the middle of the night and they were like, uh, you got to be at the Hit Factory tomorrow to uh, mix the record. I said, mix what record? You said the Beyonce record. I said, I don't, I don't have any Beyonce record. He said, yeah, yeah, she wrote one of your tracks and recorded it and now it's on the album so they got to mix it tomorrow. And I was like... <laughs> what <laughs> so so next you know that was a fun call yeah, i'm in the studio with her the next day and we're mixing the record and so so the thing about it is i know from the conversation we had that day that this record really meant something to her it made a statement and and the thing about it is when i did the track it felt very erotic and sexual and when they wrote it it was exactly what i was trying to convey so it showed me the power of your music and being able to speak to people through your music because what I was thinking was exactly what they wrote about. And so it was perfect and she just killed it. And so I knew the record really meant something to her because it, it was it it showcased the side of her she had What's never the name heard. of that track again? Speechless. Okay. And so it's on the Dangerously in Love album. And so when she said my name, it was it wasn't just that she said my name. I saw her multiple times after that and she always was so excited to see me every time. So I knew the record really meant something to her. Uh, she talked about it all the time in interviews. I was on the EPK um, when she did the album EK and EPK Great, and she man. was talking about it. And um, she even told me that in rehearsals, Prince's band learned the record and played the record for her in rehearsals. <laughs> And Prince told my lawyer this was like his favorite record of all time. So that's, that's like the ultimate compliment. So when you hear all this and she shouts your name out, I know that that record meant something to her. So when the moment happened, it just blew me away that like, not that she won, but that I was just mentioned along with these great producers. So I knew that record really meant something to her and it always will. And, and so many people hit me on Instagram and YouTube and talk about that record and talk about how impactful that record was when they were in college or whatever. They used to listen to that record all the time and people will try to cover it and sing it and all this thing. So 
it just shows you the power of music and you're making this music in your bedroom and all of a sudden it's touching the world and having a different effect on all these different people in so many different ways. So, so cool, man. Yeah, it's so an cool. amazing experience. And I mean, and even when it happens at that level, you're still, yeah. you know, you're still like, uh, you know, you right. can't you can't believe it happened. Right, right. You're glad it happened, but you well, can't believe it right. happened. But you got to kind of play it cool. Yeah, right. I mean, you have to play it cool the whole time professionally, anyway. Well, that was my time. whole career, anyway. Like when I'm producing all these artists, I don't really have a full grasp of what's going on. It's just happening, and my phone is just constantly ringing, and you're doing it. But then, when you come out of it, then you start realizing the impact of it. Because, like I, I said the other day on Instagram, it's like you're always chasing the next hurdle. The next accomplishments, the next thing. Yeah, so you man. don't you don't really get to think about your career in retrospect unless you do one of these shows and you and they're talking about it. But for me, I'm always on to the next thing. So this is a you know these are these moments where you really get to think about. It. It's like, oh wow, I forgot I did that. Yeah, I I did that. Oh wow, you know. So so so. But when you're in it, you're not even really thinking about it. At well, least because, I was. Like you said, it's yeah. on to. It's like right. that's that's done. Right. And especially right. now too, man, because mm. it's so everything recycles and right. turns over so fast. Yeah. More that it's than not ever like now. you. Yeah. You just don't get time to to mm. to revel in the you know and sit yeah. and just go, man, look what I did. Yeah. Because you're you're busy doing the night. Like I mean, I'm like that night. with uh, my album. I'm like 17 songs in on the Billy Lennox project, but music ideas are still coming in. So when you think about those first couple of songs that you did that you thought were so great, like you're like, oh, yeah, all right, I'm on to this thing now. So yeah. I, and yeah, you man. know what? Prince always talks about that throughout his career. It was always about, by the time he finished the album, he was on to the next album. Totally. And so it was like the record company wants you to put out the record and promote it for a year. Then they want you to tour another year before you start your next record. But he's already passed that because he had to live it. He had right. to write about it and record it and then put it out. Yeah. That's like three to four years of like that music. And, you know, when you're having so many musical ideas, you're moving on to something else. So it's um, during the time when he was doing it, the record companies didn't understand it. But now artists put out a record two and three times a year. Yeah. So they yeah. get it now, but at the time they were telling him, you're putting music out too fast, they can't consume it and everything. And, I, and they were wrong, you know? Well, and consumers too, like when you look at the, when you look at like the life, when you look at like the lifespan of a record or a song or, 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 or whatever, you can, you don't realize that as a consumer, the day that that single is released uh -huh. is the first day in the life of that song yeah. to the listener. Yeah. Man, yeah. you've been you've been working on that, you know, you've been living in that thing for how long and yeah. you're done with it, man. Yeah. You know, and so when they get it, like you said, it's really hard. You can't you can't start all over again right. with that song at the day right. that it's released right. and go like, hey, this is like day one. Like right. you've been working on it. And that's a like a lot of stuff that we work on in here, especially mm -hmm. this past year with the pandemic. Right. Has just been compiling, and right. now finally, you know, with all this stuff with the world kind of opening back up, mm -hmm. all these records are coming out. Right, and I'm like, man, I can't even. We that's a year and a half ago. Definitely, you know? a lot. Like I said, a lot of the records that I ended up placing on these artists were records that I did six months to two years, three years before that. Mm -hmm. I had everybody. Everybody that makes music has a hard drive of arsenal of records in there. <laughs> that and it'll be hit records that in your mind they feel like a hit record that just takes forever to place, but I always say a good song will always find a home. So, yeah. so yeah. you just keep stacking them until you have that moment. Because at some point in your career as a producer, you're going to be that guy that 
they just hang on your every word. So if you say, yeah, this is the record, they're like, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, this is the record. This is, this is the record right here. And so I look at Pharrell and, and, and the Neptunes and them where they're just unloading their catalog of all these <laughs> records they did a while ago, but they say this is going to be a hit record and, and they put it out. So, yeah. so that's the thing about it is that just keep making music, man. It's yeah. going to find a home. Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm. So tell me about Michael Jackson. Oh, wow. So... So we did this record. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to pick your brain. No, no, that blows me away more than anything. Then we're going to talk about Billy Lynn. Yeah. So, because that, that blows me, that blows me away more than anything. So. And me too, man. Like, I'm just like, I look at it and uh, I'm like, that's, that's at that. I mean, in, in, and at that time, mm-hmm. that was the top of the, that was the top right. of the mountain. Man. Well, you know, when you grow up watching Michael Jackson cartoons and buying his albums and things like that, and you just grew up with Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. Especially being from Greensboro, North Carolina, you never think that it, you know you'll be in the same room with Michael Jackson. You don't even think you're gonna even see him or meet him. I, you know, so the closest I got to is like going to a concert and seeing him on stage. But he's way up there, and I'm way back there. So right. So um, so I get this track, and it feels like Michael Jackson. So I was like, who do I know that? that loves Michael Jackson and can write Michael Jackson. So I find this writer, Teron Bill, and he writes the perfect Michael Jackson song. And then I'm like, okay. Now when you go to the A&R, you gotta make them feel Michael Jackson. So we find a reference singer that sounds like Michael Jackson. So I go get the reference singer. Uh, I mean, he gets the reference singer. I said, make sure the reference singer sounds like Michael. And they, they do the record and it sounds like Michael. So it sounds like Michael, the track feels like Michael, now we have to get it to Michael, right? But I'm like, you can't get to Michael Jackson, this is Michael Jackson, it's impossible. Right. So, so, <laughs> so I was like, but I have been working with Virgin lately, and I know Janet Jackson, because all the Jacksons have a similar sound, so I was like, let me get it to Janet. So I go play the record for the A&R, and she's like, uh, nobody will do this record, this record is about death, um, um, uh, it was a record called Heaven Can Wait and I was like no she's like nobody's gonna do this record it's about dying and Janet's not gonna do this and so I was like okay so we end up selling the record to Babyface's brother Kavon Edmonds right and they give us this stupid check at the time it was like I don't know $35,000 for this song right and I'm like it ain't Michael Jackson but it is $35,000 so we go and right. cut the record and while we're cutting the record you know Teron is trying to make him sound like the reference and Kevon Edmonds comes out of the booth and he's just like, this dude's trying to make me sound like Michael Jackson. And he's like, I mean, I'm not Michael Jackson, I'm Kevon Edmonds. If you want to sound like Michael Jackson, you need to go get, get a record of Michael Jackson. And the light bulb went off. And I was like, he's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I start playing Six Degrees of Separation and next thing you know, I was like, there's a guy named Kenny Quiller from Charlotte, North Carolina that I know that is Teddy Riley's assistant. Teddy Riley is working on Michael Jackson. I send him the song, Two weeks later, Michael Jackson is standing in my face like this. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, that's the greatest. Did this just happen? <laughs> and so um, the whole time I'm talking to him, he's very sincere, very genuine. He stares you right in the face when he talks to you. And like, this is not Michael Jackson, hi, how you doing? And you keep it moving. This is Michael Jackson having a conversation with you about your music and telling you how much he loves it. So. So that's the beauty of it is just like he really loved the song. Uh, I was trying to take him back to Lady in My Life because at that time, Michael was just, the slow songs were just like Heal the World type records. Right. He hadn't done a record about 
uh, a woman in such a long time, I was like, this is going to take him back to that space. Once again, doing something different than what he's been doing, where he's talking about this love for a woman. And so he does the record, kills it. He ends up keeping some of the background vocals from the reference singer on the record. That's cool. And what was, what was so interesting about it, he's such a perfectionist. Michael Jackson went and he got, so he has his vocal coach. So Michael Jackson came, Michael Jackson came in the studio and went and got with his vocal coach and warmed up for like an hour and a half of just vocal exercises and then came and sang for like 30 minutes and then left, right? But what blew me away about it is like his preparation. Like, I don't know, I've worked with a lot of singers. I don't know anybody that warmed up, did vocal exercises for an hour and a half before they came and sang. People just come in and they just start singing. Right. And so it let me know that like he was really a perfectionist, wanted to make sure he had a process and he had been working at the same vocal coach forever. So so all of these, working with all these different artists, Beyonce was such a perfectionist. She wasn't just a singer, she was involved in the mix. You know, the arrangement that I had, she came in and changed stuff and was like, I want this here because I'm gonna sing this here. So she was really involved in the record. So I'm learning stuff from all of these artists from Biggie and his arrangements to Beyonce and uh, uh, the arrangement on the track from Michael Jackson and his process of um, how he how he approaches the song and warming up and preparing for it. So I'm learning from these icons, all these important things that go into artistry and their process. And this is why they are who they are. Right. So I'm really in school the whole time while I'm learning this. And so, you know, it was just when Michael, when I was doing the record on him, he's having a conversation with me and immediately during the conversation, of course, he turns into Charlie Brown's teacher at that point. I don't know what he's saying to me. <laughs> and I just bust out with this big Kool-Aid smile on my face. And I know he's looking at me like, what is this dude? Why is this guy smiling, right? But for me, it was like, it just hit me in that moment. Like, this is Michael Jackson that you're talking to right now. And you're from Greensboro, North Carolina. I don't know anybody in Greensboro that has ever had a conversation with Michael Jackson standing this close to your face. That's amazing. And so man. it just blew me away. And so it's a very surreal moment and one that I'll never forget. That's awesome, yeah, man. Yeah. And I, and, and the, the part about all those stories that have this common thread to me, speaking to younger people who might be listening to this, who might be coming up, uh -huh. you know, uh, wanting to do this, is that everything that you've mentioned on how you got these songs to people mm -hmm. have to do with a circle of connections. Like you said, I'm going to play Six Degrees right. of Separation. And the majority of the people that you knew uh -huh. weren't because uh -huh. you knew Michael Jackson. Right. Already. It was because you're like, man, I got to put these connection pieces together. Look, that is the most important thing in the music business, period. And I still hang on that to the day. Is like, and when I was doing it, it was just email. You couldn't, it was no Instagram. It was no text message. Right. It was any, well, it was some text messages. But the thing about it is I learned in that Michael Jackson moment that like, this is the biggest artist in the planet and I got to him. So that showed me at that moment, you can get to anybody because somebody that you know, yep. knows somebody, knows somebody and you can get to them. And then once you have a discography of artists that you work with, once you start sending that around, everybody's gonna be receptive to your call because they're like, if he did this, then he's probably got some good music to share with us. So yeah. 
But six degrees of separation is the most important thing, and I hang on that to this day, that there's not a person on this planet that I can't get to through six degrees of separation. Yeah, you and, you got, and, and also, too, once you figure out that part, right. it's sort of like the thing like you're talking about where there's a when, when we were coming up, it was always, there was always such a, when I was coming up, it was such a disconnect in knowing anyone that did anything right. of that magnitude right. or, or, or even in the business, mm -hmm. right? But we always thought, Man, if I could just get my songs to so and so, right. if I could just whatever. But when that happens, uh -huh. that's the other piece of the puzzle you got to be prepared oh, yeah, for yeah, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can't just sit and write a bunch of stuff that you think is the greatest and uh -huh. just go like, "Oh man, all I got to do is meet somebody now and I'm gonna right. be a superstar." It's like, man, no. you got to be prepared oh, for when Michael Jackson right. is staring you in the face. Right. That track that you've set up and 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 ready to go has mm -hmm. got to be right. Like has got to be ready and ready to go. And you have to know how to get it to that point. Look, that's a whole another thing that I learned is um, like um, the mix on the rough mix on the record is so important. And I learned this from Rodney Jerkins is like when I go into the session to play my tracks, I'm making them at home and it's from the drum machine straight to the tape deck or whatever, CD burner, whatever, right? Not knowing that when I go into the A and R meeting, Rodney Jerkins has his he has his engineer mixing his rough mix, so that that thing sounds like the record. Right. So when he's playing your tracks, and they're just a straight direct from the drum machine to the cassette deck, it doesn't have the same feel as when Rodney is playing his, and he's got all kinds of EQ and effects and everything, and it sounds like the record. So when he turns his thing up in the meeting, his thing sounds like that shit is on the radio right. now, <laughs> and your joint sounds like a demo. And then I was like. <laughs> You're competing against all of these top producers that make records and have those records, the demo sounding like the record. Yeah. So if you can't make your music sound like that when you're going into playing the, 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 for the meeting, the A&R meeting, they're going to win every single time because it already feels like it's a record. Yep. So when he's got it in and he's turning up and Rodney's bouncing his head and, and woo and just going like all animated. He's selling it. Yeah, he's definitely. <laughs> he's selling and, it to the and last you're sitting minute. There and yours doesn't sound like that. And you're like, I hope he at least lets 30 seconds go by before he goes to the next track because mine doesn't sound like his. So at that point, I learned that you got to make that thing sound like the record. Mm -hmm. You can't be telling, you can't come in there with a bunch of excuses. I, I always tell artists all the time they come in there, well, it hasn't been mixed and it's just rough and all that. I was like, you got to be confident enough that what I'm about to play you, you're going to get it, and it sounds like the record yeah. versus, well, it's it's not mixed yet. Oh, right? dude. You can't say any of that. You got to be like, I'm confident that what I'm going to play you is going to blow you away. I always tell them, I'm like, your yeah. music cannot come with a disclaimer. Yeah. yeah. It cannot Off come top. with a disclaimer. Yeah. If it's got a disclaimer, you yeah. need to finish it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Need, it's not done. Right. And so either don't bring it right. in to record it mm -hmm. or don't play it for me. Right. Because I don't want to hear it. Right. And, that, and that's like, that's the comment you say after you play it. Oh, you like that? That's just a rough mix. Right. You know what I'm saying? You got you to come with that afterwards. All right. I think I'm going to steal that. I think yeah. I'm going to steal that yeah. afterwards. Yes. You got to come with that afterwards. afterwards. All right. So after all this uh, crazy superstar talk of yours, mm -hmm. let's talk about Billy Lennox record. Yes. And what you're doing and when it's coming out and if it's coming out. And, yes. And what's been cracking so far with it. Okay. So, so... I've always been behind the scenes as a producer, but I've always have had an itch to be an artist. And like so many times, I would always play the background as the visionary behind it. And I would be working with all these artists. I'll put so much time and money into these artists, developing these artists. 
and we would go and get to the point where we get the record deal and then the artist burns and crashes right and they can't they can't navigate through the ups and downs right when it's happening right so i just realized i was like you can't want the deal and success to happen more than the artist does because the artist has to actually go out there and do it so when that happened a couple of times i realized i was like well, you're giving them all the information, you're developing the artist, you're making all the music, you're writing the songs, why aren't you the artist? Right. Because <laughs> cause I know what I can do, I know I can endure the bumps and the bruises, the ups and downs of the music business. I don't know if this person that I'm investing all my time and money to into can do that. So at that point, I was just like, let me really focus on being the artist now. Um, I'm out of that stage of trying to be the producer for some artist and trying to live through his his dreams. I was like, let me focus on my own thing. And I had all the connections to the executives. I make all the music. I know what I want to do. I'm bold enough to try to do something that is different than what is already out there and stand behind it. Because when you do something to the left or something that's different than what's in the industry already, it's going to take a, a second for people to get it. But when everybody does get it, everybody gets it. Like I always say, right. nobody's gonna get it until everybody gets it. So, <laughs> so that's true. So, 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 so I was like, I want to make this record that it encompasses everything that is me, everything that I grew up on, everything that I'm into. I went to Greensboro Day School, listening to pop music, listening to Wings and Neil Sedaka and all these different pop artists growing up. But then I'm coming home and listening to black radio and hearing all these soul artists. So, so I'm like. That's in me. When right. I was producing, I was always sampling classic rock records versus, you know, and then jazz and things like that. So, so I was like, let me make this record that encompasses all that. And all my heroes were doing those type of records where they were like a, a fusion of a lot of different things. Every icon that you know on the planet has done a fusion of something to create something new. Right. So when you look at the police and you look at Jimi Hendrix and all these different artists, they were doing a fusion. So I was like, let me do that. And so I started writing this Billy Lennox project and I started writing records. I started singing. I learned how to sing. Uh, I just found my own sound and direction. And you can't do that unless you have your own equipment and you're at home and you're in there where nobody is around. You have no inhibitions. Right. And you're just writing and trying things that may or may not work. But if it, but it, I would say it's recording. If it doesn't work, you erase it. But you have to try it, and you have to find <laughs> That's a good yourself. philosophy. I yeah. never really thought about it that way. You have to find yourself as an artist because if you don't know who you are, they're going to try to tell you who you are, and most of the times they are wrong. Yep. So you got to really zoom in, hone in, and know who I am what my perspective is, what my music sounds like. You have to do enough of your music so you have a direction and a sound so that they can they can identify, like, this is his sound, this is the type of stuff that he talks about, this is him as an artist. And so for the last two years, I've just really been developing myself so that I'm very sure of what all of those things are. So when I present to the, to the label, there's no question when they're asking me you know, different about the project. I know exactly what it is, where it's going to fit in the marketplace, and who I am. And so, um, 
17 songs. The pandemic was the best thing that ever happened to me because it's like you're not paying bills. You're not out there chasing Crazy, checks. right? Yes, you're in your room from the time you wake up until the time you go to sleep writing and recording every single day. Dude, for the studio yeah. business and studio yeah. cats and people that do that, it was yeah. like, I can't, like, it's kind of weird because I kind of mm. feel guilty yeah. at a certain point. Yeah. But at a certain <laughs> point, I'm like, Shit, man, I don't feel guilty. Like I was just afforded a, you know, mm. I was just afforded the time to be. And really, I I, I worked more in 2020, mm. not necessarily with other people, but just in here, yeah, constantly because yeah. nobody was on the road, right? And that, and that was my whole thing is just like finding myself and having the space because I always seek creative freedom, and to seek creative freedom, you have to have the finances that. You're not waking up worrying about paying any bills. You're just making music every single day. And when right. you clear that 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 noise out, you can really focus and you can get into a spot of repetition where you're making music every single day. Right. And anytime repetition repetition comes in the room, you're going to make your best music and cuz you're in that space. And so my thing was like I did like 14 songs during the during the pandemic wrote and produced 14 songs and put out two singles and two videos and things like that. So so it really gave me a chance to really like, and it, Billy Links would have never happened had it not been for the pandemic to really find myself as an artist. And so now the record is done. Are all the songs out yet? No, no. I've only put out two singles out and two, two videos. Scars was the first single. The second right. single was Electric Sex. Uh, you can find them on Spotify and on YouTube. The videos are on there as well. And so once I finish that, um, now I have uh, have offers in, on the table right now. So now I'm about to go to New York and L.A. and begin the shopping process of finding the, the right home. Not just sign any deal, but find the right home for the project with somebody that really gets it right. and can see what it's supposed to be and help me execute it. So... Um, that has been the thing. And just also to understanding the importance of content and being able to post content and getting people engaged because totally. that's how I got executives interested in my music is that I was posting, you know, the journey of me making the music and posting the music every day. And so when people get on and they see you're doing this on a regular basis, they become engaged to the point that they're coming back every day to see what else you're doing with the project every day. So that was something I had to learn to just be more open to posting content and letting people in yeah, on the music. It's a thing, man, yeah. because it's it's because the old school was hold it all in, hold it all in. Right. We're going to release it all at one right. time. We're going to release a single right. and then release it all. And I still don't struggle tell anybody with that. about anything. Right. I still struggle with that. It's but weird, man. We're not in that place anymore mm -mm. where it's like they'll make a music to, uh, song tonight and tomorrow morning. It's it's on there, <laughs> dude. It's tough. for everywhere. Yes. For, yes. For to everywhere. Get it. You so, know. so for the people who on the uh, final YouTube version of this can't see the mm. cool necklace with the artist's name on oh, it, yeah. B-I-L-L-I-E-L-E-N-N-O-X <laughs> -E -N -N uh -huh. for my listeners yes. to check that out via mm. just, you know, Google search that. Yes. It's on Spotify. Billy Lennox, uh, I created the name because uh, I really got into the experimental period of the Beatles and really just studied that whole period. And I remember John, uh, uh, Paul... Um, Paul McCartney faked his death. They had a guy named Billy Shears or whatever that was <laughs> pretending to be Paul McCartney, and it was like a big promotional stunt that they did. So that's where the Billy came from because I really admired that period of the of the Beatles and their experimentation. 
and Lennox is Lennox Ave in New York City, Malcolm X. So, you know, I put those two things together and that's that's the gist of who Billy Lennox is. He's, he's about experimentation and being creative, but also he's got a perspective and a message that uh, will help people. And that's the biggest thing about music. What I, I learned through this thing is that like, music is so powerful. It touches so many people. You cannot take that for granted and waste that moment that everybody is listening to your song without saying something that will heal people, that will help people get through a tough situation. Because from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep, we're always consuming music. So when you have their attention, you're the messenger. You're the guy that is going to help people get through whatever it is they're getting through yeah, man. in that moment. So you have to take advantage of that and just understand that like God sent us here. He sent me here to do that. Right. He sent me all this music is coming through me and I'm yeah, the Yeah, we're vessel. just a conduit, yeah. man, and and we have to stop at a certain point and like you said we have yeah. to you have to get over all the yeah. things that are put in your way as a hurdle and you just have to go like, all right, whatever's right. whatever's coming through me is supposed to come through Definitely. me. Definitely. Whatever's coming through you yeah. is supposed to come through you. And, and and I so I don't make music like I know now a lot of artists go in the studio trying to make that hit record constantly so they do the same thing over they keep making another version of the same record over and over again because they're trying to get a hit single but for me i grew up in a time where the album was a full statement so i took you through so many different moods and and expressions throughout the whole album so it's viewed as a whole piece of material versus a song right i don't want you to buy into a song i want you to buy into billy lennox to the point where you know everything about me after you listen to this album and you're interested in my perspective versus a song you know yeah that's awesome yeah well man i think we're about at Oh man, we're over an hour. We're about oh, an hour wow. twenty right now. Wow. Look at that! People getting their money's worth wow. for their free podcast. So, mm-hmm. I want to thank you. I can't mm-hmm. thank you enough for coming in here and doing this. Man. Yeah, man. And uh, again, my friend, fanatic, mm-hmm. uh, Billy Lennox. Mm-hmm. Look for everything everywhere that you can. Yeah. If you want to go back and look up any of those videos about the stuff that we were talking about with mm-hmm. the with the you know Beyonce at the Grammys mm-hmm. with any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all out there. Yeah. Just search it out, and it's mm-hmm. really cool. And I'm just honored to call this guy a friend. Again, Fanatic, yeah. the producer, and thank you for tuning in to Conversations in Groove. Make sure you follow me on Instagram. Oh, yeah, what's your what's your IG? Uh, Fanatic, a.k.a. Billy Lennox. You can follow me on Instagram and follow my journey as we put this music out. It's going to be a big year for us. You guys be good. We'll see you next time. Peace. See? What did I tell you? Told you it was going to be a cool episode, right? Cool and super, super groovy. You know why? Because this is Conversations in Groove. Check it out on our Earth Tones official YouTube channel and on all of your podcast apps. I'm Benji Johnson. I am your host, and I will be your host every week for Conversations in Groove live right here from Earth Tones Recording Studio.